the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gargoyles, crepe enthusiasts, welcome back to season five of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thanks for coming along on this journey as we time travel across the pond to 50 years ago and travel with the Grateful Dead on their historic Europe 72 tour. We are bringing new episodes of the Deadcast to you weekly this season. Each episode covers the shows that took place on the Europe 72 tour 50 years to the week after they happened. Visit us at our website, dead.net slash deadcast, and explore the extra materials we have for you to devour for this episode. In fact, we are releasing a daily dose of Europe 72 ephemera during Season 5 for you to sample, so there will be new content for you on the regular. Make sure to check your social media. You never know when something cool is going to pop up. Also at dead.net slash deadcast are all of our past episodes from Seasons 1 through 4, and you can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform and listen where you'd like to listen. Did you attend any of the shows on the Europe 72 tour? Do you know somebody who did? Well, get them over to stories.dead.net and record any tales you have about the tour. We're especially interested in hearing from somebody who attended the Netherlands or the Munich shows. There's still time to get you into future episodes covering those. So head on over. We need your stories. How about some Europe 72 music for your collection? July 29th will bring Lyceum 1972, the Complete Recordings Limited Edition, a 24 LP box set with four complete shows from the tail end of the Europe 72 tour, available exclusively at dead.net. This one is selling fast, folks. If you think you might want to get it, I suggest jumping on it soon. And there's also a newly remastered version of the original Europe 72 album. It'll be available on CD, LP, and digitally also on July 29th. Well, this week we travel to the City of Lights, Paris, France, for two shows at the famed Olympia Theater on May 3rd and May 4th, with a third show scheduled that, well, you'll just have to stay tuned to see what happens, won't you? Don your berets. Grab a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine, and let's all follow Jesse Jarno for a stroll along the Seine. On May Day 1972, the Grateful Dead arrived in France. They'd been in Europe for exactly a month and had plenty of adventures and made some fantastic music. But in the course of the tour's first 10 performances, they'd only caught two songs that would make it to the original Europe 72 triple LP. That would change significantly when they got to Paris, where, in the comfortable confines of the Olympia Theatre, they found a welcoming crowd of heads and captured more than twice that. Five live dead recordings that virtually every head knows. But to paraphrase the great music documentarian Marty DeBergi, they got more. A lot more. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Bus and the Bolo Bus took the two-day overland route from Hamburg to Paris with an overnight stop in Königswinter. As always, we're standing on the shoulders of heads, and specifically David Gans. This next bit of Bob Weir comes from David and Marty Martinez's 1995 interview with him, and it's followed by an interview David did with the Dead's late manager, John McIntyre. Check out David's books at perfectible.net. We'd hit multiple and varied truck stops to the amazement and consternation of the, uh, of the locals. We had two buses, like 52 people. And so one of the things that uh, I just remember, I guess Rosie wasn't there because Rosie speaks, is French, and therefore born in Paris, speaks fluent French. But she must not have been there because I remember a lot of times driving through France in these two buses with 52 hippies, and uh, we would be, it'd be four in the afternoon, and we'd be really hungry. And when people like us are really hungry, it's like, not a good idea to let that hunger go on any longer because it'll it'll might burst out in ways that you're not really comfortable with, um, and so we'd have to go to some little countryside French place, and of course all of France closes down uh, between two thirty and and seven for for food. You just don't. It's just it's not like in this country where there are things that are open all the time and you can eat, you know, you can eat whenever. No, that doesn't happen in France. You eat when the meals are cooked and served. And so I would have to go in there with my small knowledge of French, try to talk them into <laughs> serving 52 really weird-looking people who will be very grateful if they were fed at a time when no one is eating in the entire country. And that happened a lot. The Grand Hotel in Paris was expecting a 37-piece orchestra. The beautiful dead, monsieur? The desk clerk asked Rolling Stone writer Jerry Hopkins, who arrived before the band did. Hopkins met up with the dead the next day at the crack of noon, a day off before their Paris debut. A number of details come from his great story, The Beautiful Dead Hit Paris, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. Rosie McGee was along for the ride, sometimes assisting Sam Cutler, sometimes assisting the recording crew from Alembic, where she worked in the administration side back home. This is from her 2014 conversation with David Gans for the great book, This Is All a Dream We Dreamed. So at first, Sam had, in each hotel, he had a large suite, which he could use as his, his road office. And they had to hand out per diems every day. So, and this was a large crew of people. So at first, I helped. You know, I'd go to his suite in the morning and help hand out the per diems. And then because Francis Carr was with him, and he didn't really need my help. So after a while, I just, you know, went off and had fun whenever we were in a French-speaking country. Rosie McGee, bless her, she helped a lot, you know, because she spoke perfect French. I didn't speak French. A bit of French, but not much. I spoke Spanish, but we weren't in Spain, so that didn't help. I knew how to say fuck off in about 15 different languages. That, that sometimes came in handy. Sam, kudos to him, he put together that whole tour, and he tour managed it, he booked it, he fronted it, he road managed it, and all of that. But my impression of Sam was that he was dismissive of the women. He frequently referred to us in a clump as the old ladies, you know. Oh, it's just the old ladies, don't worry about it. And... Uh, no, never got to know me as an individual until maybe three years ago. But in France, Rosie had some jobs to do. This is from her cool audiobook, Dancing with the Dead, which you can acquire via her site, rosiemcgee.com. 
The night before we were to arrive in France, I got to work. My first task was to write and produce a newsletter that would be helpful to my fellow travelers while they were in Paris. Using several current guidebooks for research, I wrote a short history of Paris, sightseeing and restaurant tips within a short taxi ride or walking distance of the hotel, and some basic French phrases that might come in handy. When we got to the Paris hotel, I typed it up and, with the help of the hotel staff, copied and assembled it late that night. Everyone had a copy under their door when they got up in the morning. As far as I can tell, the traveling party woke up to the first issue of the Bozos and Bolos news. It might have been the only issue. There were perhaps other in-tour documents, but none of them seemed to have survived. We produced a daily, or every couple of days, produced a little kind of handout thing that maybe, you know, said, well, this has changed or that has changed. Alan Trist of Ice Nine Publishing. I do remember it really started getting into gear in Paris. We stayed in a wonderful hotel in Paris, Grand Hotel, but the publication that was, that was put out every day and sent around to us, I think the first one of those was at Paris. There were several. They sort of came and went like leaves blown in the wind. I, <laughs> I kept none, you know. I wish I had. I don't even really have much memory of the content, but there were, I know that Hunter had, had quite a few of his jokes in there about hypocrisy. And uh, Sam also had a lot of very important information about when the bus was leaving in the morning. I mean, he famously described it, his job as like herding cats. That was certainly, must have been the case. <laughs> I was one of the cats most of the time. Today is a free day, the Paris issue of Bozos and Bolos News read. In the evening, Kinney is hosting a dinner for all of us and a few discreet press people at a very fine restaurant located in the Bois de Boulogne, the city park, but what a park. It is called Le Grand Cascade, and holy shit is it ever neat. You might even feel like dressing special for it, although you don't have to. It's just that kind of place. There was plenty to do during their off day in Paris. The lighting crew couldn't wait to get there. Ben Holler. Candace and I, we bought a Eurail pass, so... Because you had so many days during things, you didn't have to stay on the bus. And the bus was kind of boring. And if you're in Germany, you can get to Paris three days early. Come on, baby. Alan Trist. We got very close with a couple of French filmmakers called Jean-Jacques Damiani and uh, Daniel, forget his last name, but they were really into that time period. They were trying to make films about the youth movement we later saw a lot of them because they came to California and hung out over a course of about 10 years in the 70s. Whenever they were in America, they come visit us. And they took us around Paris. They showed us places. The famous dinner of Warner Brothers in Luxembourg Gardens. They were so helpful in shepherding us around. And I think that's the sense of family that we got in Paris through these people the sense that these were really people you could be close with. They took us to another famous restaurant in Paris, I forget the name of that, and to walks down the Seine, past the bookstores, to Notre Dame, you know, they, they were tour guides in Paris. The Daniel, I think, is Daniel Schuster. There's a distant photo of them in the Grateful Dead family album. The first day of sightseeing, the band struck out, as Garcia recounted to Jerry Hopkins. Almost every place we went today was closed. The Louvre is closed Tuesdays. 
We went to Notre Dame and saw that, but we couldn't climb the tower. We went to the Cluny. We saw that. It was sacked by the barbarians in the year 300, and before that it was a Roman bath. Flash, flash. History everywhere you look. Far out. As Mountain Girl remembers, they did make it back to the Louvre. We had a great time. Um, We went around and did all kinds of stuff together. The museums were particularly high on our list. But we went to the Louvre, like, twice. That was fun, because you can only do a little bit at a time in there. It's a little overwhelming. I remember going and looking at the wing of a museum that was all old instruments. I got Jerry. He liked that. And uh, we spent spent about an hour in there uh, looking at antique instruments, really old, you know, like a thousand years old. And, you know, it's really interesting, the history of music and musical instruments. Uh, We don't really have a history of that here in this country, but but there they've got it. I think MG is remembering the Musée de la Musique. It was fun to see all the cultural differences with the eating and everything. One night in Paris... Mountain and Jerry had gotten into an elevator. Candace and I got in with them. And then this very elegant couple in a tuxedo and an evening dress and everything get in. And the husband looks at his wife, just not thinking. He says, honey, remind me, I got to get a haircut. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had hair to my waist at that point. And Mountain and Candace are like giggling away, having a grand time. Mountain was always great. She was salt of the earth. She was just, you know, she was wonderful. Keith and Donna Godshow were having a pretty intense go of it in Europe, enjoying themselves, but also experiencing a bit of whiplash being thrown into the center of a traveling circus, from which they'd very much been outsiders only six months earlier. In Paris, didn't we stay at the Grand Hotel? That was an amazing place. I remember Keith and I were such fish out of water. I was afraid. We were very close to the Louvre, and I was afraid to go outside. I was trying to navigate through, like, coming off a spaceship and landing on another planet. I was just afraid to do anything or go anywhere, and I wish I could turn back that clock and redo that. Dennis Wiz Leonard from The Great Interview by Blair Jackson. We've linked to This Is All a Dream We Dreamed at dead.net slash deadcast. We had a great brunch in somebody's room and on, you know, it was day off, of course, yeah. many. And then we took a walk over to the Olympia Theater when the backstage door was down an alley. Depending on which off day they headed to the Olympia, the dead crew may have encountered either the post-Jim Morrison Doors, who played the Olympia on May Day, their only ever appearance in Paris, and following Morrison's death there less than a year before, and on the 2nd of May, the dead crew may have crossed paths with the Canterbury Prague weirdos, the soft machine. We're leaving to go back to the hotel, and Pig has, like, kind of straggled behind. And it's this beautiful cobblestone alley, and I look back, and there's Pig. He takes his hat off, throws it down on the ground, and does a jig on it. Now I got some Paris dirt in my hat. Pigpen rode home to his parents from Paris. Unfortunately, this is the last of his letters that seems to have survived. There certainly could have been more. Thanks, Sully, for both reading these letters and preserving them. This and the rest of the Pigpen archive is in loving hands. You can check out parts of the collection in the Facebook group, The Cult of Ron McKernan. Paris sure is mellow in the springtime. Sidewalk cafes, motorbikes on the sidewalks parked, groups just peacefully hanging out outside a bistro, just like in the movies. It's great. And we're only here a few days. Oh, forgot the famous French whores. They're here, too. 
Steve Parrish, on the other hand, took Parrish by storm, kind of almost literally. He had better luck at Notre Dame and the Louvre than his boss did. Take it away, Parrish. Every day was a fucking crazy adventure, especially because on days off, we took acid. Phil and Ramrod and myself, the famous trip we made to Notre Dame, which uh, was at that time fully intact and just ancient, ancient, and no guards hardly anywhere in the place, man. And so we went in there in the afternoon and we sat there looking at the Mandela and we were so high. Phil was saying, look at this thing, guys. And it was spinning. It was just like rotating so fast. And you couldn't stop staring at this stained glass window in there. And then I noticed a doorway over on the side here. And so Ramrod and I go over there poking around and we open the door and there's steps. They're, they're stone steps, man, on a spiral staircase. And the steps were so old that the middle of the steps were worn down by footprints going up to that roof for centuries. And so we started walking. We were so high, we just started walking. And we're walking and walking and, and going up this spiral staircase. And then where are we? We're on the roof of Notre Dame, man, where the gargoyles are, right? And then there's this fucking built little thing in the middle of it. And I, I at that time, there was a thing, I think it was in a Rolling Stones song or something, but it said, looking through glass darkly. And then I understood what it meant because in the old days, I'm talking about in the Middle Ages, when they made glass, it wasn't perfect like our glass now. It had imperfections in it and it had a lot of soot in it because they made it imperfectly with their heating apparatuses. It's basically sand that's heated till it melts into glass. And so these carbon deposits were all through this windows on this room and I'm and I'm peering in it and then I see there's not only the bells this is the bell room of fucking Notre Dame and there's straw on the floor where I swear to God that's where fucking Quasimodo slept on that pile of straw up there and that glass was there for all that time nobody changed those windows and so I took Ramrod and he, God bless him, he only read a couple of pages of Tom Sawyer. So I'm telling him about Victor Hugo and, and Notre Dame and, and writing this great novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, based on truth and stuff like that. And, and so I, I'm telling him the story and there's the gargoyles, you know, and we're so high, right? And so we lean over and put our arms, I, I put on the, and I tell him, I do just like uh, Charles Lawton did in the later version, was my favorite version is Lon Chaney's silent version of The Hunchback. Jerry and I love that. We used to watch it all the time. And I go, why was I not made of stone? Like the, you know, as he's talking to the gargoyle, right? And, you know, I'm, and so then we got spooked, man. And we run down those stairs. He said, something's gonna happen. And we go out, just me and Ramrod, we go out in the street and we're walking through Paris, man. And we've been up on the roof looking at it, you know, laid out from Notre Dame. You can imagine what how that looked like from there. And so we go over to the Louvre now. And there we bust in there all of a sudden. And there's, you know, because all those books that I read, I say, Ramrod, look, there's winged victory. You know, this statue with no arms and wings and and there's the venus to milo and we're looking at all this stuff you know and we're wandering around in there and then we go down this long hallway and there's a tiny little easel with a small 
picture on it, a portrait down in the corner on like about the second floor, right? And so we walk over there, no one's around, man. And we're looking at it and I go, holy fuck, this is the Mona Lisa. And it's not as big as I thought in my life. It's not a, not that big a painting. And so we're looking at it and we were staring at it. We're really high, man. And I'm looking at Mona Lisa. She's staring back at me and staring at Ramrod at the same time. We couldn't figure it out. We tried to move. She's following us, right? So we go, oh, well, man, we got to smoke a joint because we, we went to Europe and we had to, I'll tell you all about this later, but we had to bring marijuana because we couldn't go anywhere without marijuana. And we weren't just going to smoke spliffs, which is what they had in Europe, okay? Hash and tobacco. So we had a joint, a nice fatty that we rolled that morning. And so we, there's a, a window right here. Here's the Mona Lisa. Here's this window. And it's just what you call French doors, you know? I, I open the latch. I swing them open. And there's a stingy little balcony. And we get out there and we light the joint up and we're smoking and breathing in, you know, the air of France and looking at the opera house and all this stuff. And, and all of a sudden, we, I hear footsteps slamming around. I look out and here comes down one hallway. Every fucking gendarme in the area is running towards us. And then the other side is all the museum guards coming the other way. I go, what the fuck, man? And so they come running over to us. They go, Monsieur, Monsieur, what? What have you done? What have you done? And I go, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He goes, you can't open these. You cannot open these. You cannot go out here. He says, you stupid Americans, he calls us, right? And he pulls us off there. He go, I go, what's the problem? He goes, because the air of Paris will completely destroy this beautiful painting. Don't you understand that? And he closes the doors. And, he, and I said, you think we're stupid? In America, those would be locked, man, if it was that important. And I, I said, you know what? I mean, you might think that, but that you, you got, if you're that important, why aren't they locked? So they just let us go and they were just shaking their heads, you know. Shit like that was happening to us all the time, man. Far out, Parrish. In Paris, the band met up with another close friend, master tie-dye artist Courtney Pollock. During our Skull and Roses Side B episode, we spoke with Courtney about his stunning tie-dye mandalas that became amp covers for the dead in 1971 in which the dead were proudly flying all across Europe. In some ways, the Grateful Dead in 1971 and 1972 might be considered a traveling Courtney Pollock art installation with additional live music. Welcome back, Courtney. Well, I went under my own steam, and I, my arrangement was to meet up with the band during the tour. I actually got a ticket that would go anywhere in the world, and I went to England and visited my folks, and then... I took off for um, Persia, which was, of course, Iran, but I went there, you know, under, like, Persia, the land of uh, mandalas, you know, these wonderful uh, ceramics and tile work, all in these great mandalas. And so that was my personal pursuit, and I fell into this great adventure with a guy I met off the plane, he introduced me to a friend of his who they were friends of the Shah. So we stayed up on the um, Mesa, the Palace Mesa, in one of these great mansions. They introduced me to one of their friends. They were at uh, university together. And she and I became an item. But while they were slogging it out to doing the European tour, which was very successful and it was a great tour, they were essentially working, and I was just having a ball, sitting in 
started climbs with these uh, jet setters. Their own. They all had their own jets and they had their own ranch with you know, all the st- horses and they were serious jet setters. But he'd brought some work supplies too, just in case, some dyes and cloth. And indeed, the Grateful Dead tracked him down. And more specifically, Ramrod tracked him down. But I understood that they were trying to reach me. We got a phone call through to Ramrod, and they needed some more speaker fronts to be replaced during the tour. So I actually made some while I was in Persia. I mailed some out, then I had some more. For when I met them, I could put them on. And that was quite late in the tour. But there was enough stuff there, enough color on the stage, so it wasn't a big deal. Courtney went to install the last few pieces himself. After a lot of escapades, we went to Europe and then met up with the band in Paris. The band were gracious and hosted us and my guests uh, for a private party, just mostly just the band members. Mountain Girl. Warner Brothers, they, they were part and parcel of this from time to time. They'd show up and take us to dinner. How lovely. From Rosie McGee's Dancing with the Dead. Warner Brothers booked an entire restaurant, Le Pavillon de la Grande Cascade in the Bois de Boulogne, and treated us to a celebratory banquet. La Grande Cascade had been built next to a large waterfall as a hunting pavilion for Napoleon III sometime in the 1870s, and it had been turned into a restaurant for the 1900 World's Fair. Its sumptuous interior was typical of the Belle Époque. The walls were covered with Italian marble. There was gilded ornamentation all around the room, and at night, the illumination from the many oversized crystal chandeliers was stunning. Alan Trist. There was a big restaurant in the middle of of the gardens that the Warner Brothers had hired for the occasion. And uh, it was a slap-up feast, no doubt. They were really trying to introduce us to French culinary culture, and he did a really good job. Before the tour, McIntyre had arranged for the band to have their have suits made by Nudie, a, a famous Los Angeles costume maker for, for the stars, you know. They were very cool, but the band, it wasn't really their thing. I remember Garcia wore the jacket once over a pair of jeans. Bobby wore the suit on stage once. But at the Luxembourg Gardens, uh, McIntyre and Matthews both had their nudie suits. And they were dressed up, and I think Bobby was too. That was an odd, odd little thing to see. And I think maybe, maybe Cutler did. They never were much into them at the time, but obviously they've become kind of treasured mementos. You know? <laughs> Sightings of the band's nudie suits are rare. Garcia had worn the nudie suit pants in London, so they were in his road case somewhere. Janet Furman. Warner Brothers Records threw a party for the band and the crew that was very, very lavish. It was, uh, can't imagine what it must have cost, but there was caviar and pate and all kinds of French delicacies and lots of beverages. And I'm sure there was a lot of pot being smoked and <laughs> a lot of carrying on. There was, there was steaks with Bernays sauce. Had to have Bernays sauce. <laughs> Unfortunately, Mountain Girl wasn't feeling up to the occasion. By the time we got to Paris, I was sick and couldn't eat anything. And we all went out to eat at some famous restaurant, lined up on a table of like 25, and I could not eat a single single bite. I was like, oh, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. 
<laughs> we can go all the way to Paris to some beautiful, fabulous place and not be able to eat it, eat any food. And and but everybody else thought it was great, and they lined up a table with you know with twenty five chairs and got everybody in the crew sitting down, eating this wonderful meal and. Even just sipping the wine was making me like dizzy, you know, does not feel well. And uh, that happens on, when you're traveling abroad, was missing my kids. And, you know, that thing that you do when you when you leave your children home with, with other people, the yeah. telephone works, but not that well. Into this gorgeous setting came the hairy horde from America with me as translator on duty. I table-hopped quite a bit during the ordering phase of the meal, but generally, the experienced staff handled everything with practiced casualness. We had a fabulous multi-course meal, and the noise level rose as the bottles of fine wine were consumed. Ben Holler. We ate one night in the Bois de Bologna in Paris in a place called the Crystal Palais, and the, the road crew's there, and we're, the, the band's there, and we have a great meal in this incredible restaurant. And at the end of it, the waiters graciously come over and give us Cuban cigars, you know. They got to turn us on to Cuban cigars. Great. And so the crew members handed them all joints. <laughs> so as we drove away, we're smoking joints, and, and the, you know, the guys are looking at these curious little cigarettes going, uh, what are these? But they're smoking them and feeling good. I like Rosie's version. After dessert, there were liqueurs and, for some, cigars. And for just about everyone, our ubiquitous hash pipes. I believe it was Sonny Hurd, one of the Oregon boys, who first offered a pipe to the Mater D, who gamely and politely took a puff and then smiled. Hurd encouraged him to take another and then pass it around to his staff. One of the waiters, a tall and elegant man I'd gotten to know from numerous translations throughout the meal, leaned over and asked me, Qu'est-ce que c'est? What is it? Knowing how much the French love the Hollywood concept of the Wild West, I said, It's a special tobacco from America, smoked by the Indians as a way of expressing friendship. Indians? You mean and he put two fingers behind his head to indicate feathers and patted his mouth with his fingertips, as in war whoops. That kind of Indians? I laughed out loud, and I said, May we, c'est ça? When a pipe was offered to him a moment later, he took a hit, smiled at me, and did the feather pantomime again. I almost fell under the table laughing. The cultural exchange went both ways. We had an appreciation for Perrier, and... I remember crews all over the world would come to me and say, what is this stuff? I've been drinking all night. I'm not high. I feel great. They, you can't drink Coca-Cola all night. They got in at 6 in the morning, and they're probably not going to go home until 6 in the morning. They need to stay awake. They need to stay hydrated, right? And it probably wouldn't be good to have two 12-packs of beer. So we turned the country onto Perrier and onto uh, Heineken. In Paris, Jerry Garcia spoke extensively with the French critic, photographer, and dead freak Alain Dister, who had lived in the Haight-Ashbury for a few years, around the time the dead did. Dister passed away, sadly, in 2008, but wrote enthusiastically about the dead in the French magazine Rock and Folk. In 2004, he published a French biography of the dead titled Grateful Dead, 
Olegin, California. Dister asked Garcia about whether or not it was important for audiences to understand the band's lyrics. I don't know if it's that important or not. It's like, for me, listening to records by Edith Piaf, I don't understand the language. With African musicians and singers, I really like those things, but whether I understand them or not is another question. I'm a musician, so I'm more interested in the way they sound rather than by what they say. When Dister asked Garcia about the French underground scene, Garcia deferred from any observations about their current trip. He told Dister, I don't believe this is the only time we'll go to Europe. It's just the beginning here. What I want to do is come here and see what people are, what they do, what happens. I really am interested. It might take me the next five years to find all this by coming twice a year. The important thing is to start to communicate, to spread, to open up. We can envisage a network, groups in each country, communicating with each other. Dister told the guitarist that some in the French underground held the dead up as paragons of revolutionary culture. Garcia demurred, calling the band evolutionary rather than revolutionary, and talked a bit about freak politics. I'd love to read a proper translation of this interview by an actual French speaker. Garcia hinted at what the dead were planning next, telling the journalist, We're going to try to make our own records ourselves, without the help of the big companies. This will be an opportunity for us to make a new step in the freak economy. There's something fantastic like this all over the West Coast. Health foods. It's a freak industry. An industry of millions of dollars. It started when they started growing their own products. And now the big chains of Safeway-style stores have started distributing natural products supplied by freaks. Heady stuff, and a topic for another day. But if you'd like to get a head start on reading up on the revolutionary story of the freak health food industry, check out Joshua Clark Davis's book, From Head Shops to Whole Foods, The Rise and Fall of Activist Entrepreneurs, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. On 3 May, it was time to get to work. Ben Holler. We played the Olympia, as I recall. Fabulous. Those old theaters just have the most wonderful acoustics. And you're walking around this history. Between the soundcheck and the gig, Pigpen wrote home. Please welcome back Sully, keeper of the Pigpen archives. Just got back from the soundcheck rehearsal. This hall sounds okay. Sold out both nights. However, there are inevitably people without tickets, sometimes hundreds outside pig baiting and trying to get in. The cops love to bust skulls, and a lot use tear gas and carry machine guns. There's a rumor afoot that the cops plant agitators inside the halls and out and use the excuse of left-wing extremists causing trouble to disperse. What a cop-out crowds. By any means they deem necessary, and the kids don't help. They come knowing they can't get in. It's sort of a booyah place to go and hang out for them. And every time the same thing happens, the kids smart of and try and get in and the cops just wanting for an excuse, move in. Why the hell don't the kids without tickets just stay home or something? It happens every time they know it. The fools hang around rock and roll show in hundreds and cops come eager to crack skulls. You hear that, kids? Pigpen says not to come to a show without a ticket. Garcia mentioned the same rumor about agitators to Rolling Stone. And on the anniversary of the May 3, 1968 student revolt, anything seemed possible. Philippe Sicard did have a ticket for the Olympia. In fact, both nights. There were a lot of police around. It was about four years after the 68 uh, 
riots in Paris, you know. So there were many, many, uh, not only because it was a dead or uh, because it was a rock uh, performance, but because uh, at that time there were many, many police everywhere. But it didn't get in the way. Multiple reviews of the show mentioned the police presence outside, with the theater operators looking suspiciously at the hippie crowd. Once past the doors, though, it was apparently a much chiller scene. The late John McIntyre, via our friend David Gans. The first time we played the Olympia in Paris, and the audiences in Paris, although they were Parisian (laughs) and therefore spoke a different language, it was like the audiences in New York. The enthusiasm, the kind of, they had already adopted us as their exciting partners, and it was just thrilling, absolutely thrilling. And of course, it's the Olympia, which is Edith Piaf's home, and all those incredible things that have happened there over the however many, you know, 100 years, 150 years, however old that hall is, you know. But it's always kind of hard to attribute the music to what was going on that evening. There's always this mystery about it as to when it's going to click and when it's not, and you can never tell. For instance, I would assume that being kind of a Francophile at the time, that the Olympia would have goosed them just the way it did. And the fact that it happened that way was like, even though I expected it, it was a surprise. Because, you, you know, just because I thought it was going to be that way doesn't mean it's going to be that way, you know. So it there's no logic to it all. Very high energy, and the kind of exciting energy, like at the Fillmore East in New York. You know, it was very similar to that, is what I felt. Grateful that archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux. It really does feel like a couple of Saturday night shows in New York, and the band matches it. And one thing I always found incredibly fascinating about Paris is they did good love in both times, both nights, and they're both. They're remarkably different. One of them is a jam-oriented, no pig pen rap whatsoever. It's a jam-oriented version. And it's similar, going back to the film Maurice, in April 71, they did Good Love and Twice also. One is jam-oriented, no rap. It's great. And then one is rap-oriented. When I say rap-oriented, I'm talking Princeton. I'm talking sold Brooklyn Bridge, dollar and a quarter, you know, pig pen, lip of the stage, engaged with those 2,000 people. Philippe Sicar had fallen in love with Live Dead. First time I saw them was uh, at, at the Olympia Theatre in Paris uh, the next year. It was refurbished about 10 years ago, but it's the same, the same spot uh, near a very famous opera house in Paris. The Olympia Theatre is, uh, is not a huge place. I think it uh, can hold uh, about uh, 1,500 people, no more. But the sound of the of the auditorium is fantastic because I, I had already been there to attend a concert by uh, the Mother's Invention in 68 and uh, the birds in just a few weeks before the dead. It was not like in, a, in, in England or the States, absolutely not. I don't really like the, the, the music in, in France. I didn't like it at then uh, at all. They were just uh, trying to do the same as the Americans with American songs. Uh, It it wasn't uh, genuine, you know. The rest of the week featured shows by French acts Magma on 7 May and Dick Rivers on 9 May, plus Jerry Lee Lewis on 8 May and British prog band East of Eden on 6 May. 
The dead had crossed paths with Magma in France the year before, jamming with them at the Chateau in Aeroville. But Magma were on their own more granular French tour and were out of town when the dead played. Anyway, how do you say, let's do this in French? With uh, all my friends, we were about five, six people who really liked the dead, and much than liked, loved the dead. There were deadheads already. Not as many as in the States now, but uh, there were some. All of the people I knew uh, who went to, to see the, the show uh, were deadheads, and uh, we were very happy, all of them. I mean, uh, it was fantastic. It's really hard to, to describe, but it's a fantastic uh, experience. I had such a great moments, and it's uh, it's really something I can't forget. It was I was so high, without any 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 substance, you know. It was fantastic because I could have been disappointed, you know, because I only knew them uh, from records, and usually sometimes it's it depends on what band, but it it can be disappointing, and there wasn't a disappointing. It was uh, the country. For me, it's, it's an incredible experience. It was pure bliss, you know. It was bliss all, all, all along. Shaking, shaking, Just don't tell them that you know me. Shaking, shaking, It was a revelation. It, it was like it was a another another band, not the dead. I, I knew it was the dead. I recognized the people, the the, the 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 musicians. It was a little strange that there was a new a new musician, Keith Gacho. I didn't know him at all, so I expected the five uh, uh, founders of the Grateful Dead, and there was uh, Keith Gacho. I was surprised because he was so so good. It was uh, Richard. I'll meet you at the Jubilee And if that Jubilee don't come Maybe I'll meet you on the road Just one thing I ask of you They played some old tunes I knew from records, but not that many, just a... China Cats and Flower, and of course Dark Star and the other one. There were so many new new songs which were great, which I, I loved right away, you know, like uh, He's Gone uh, or Black Thudded Wind, uh, uh, Jack Straw, all those things. I, I, liked, I liked very much. It was the first time I heard them. And in the case of both new and old songs, Philippe heard versions that made it to Europe 72. If you know one Grateful Dead segue, it might be China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider. And if you only know one China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider, it equally might be the Europe 72 version. You can call it China Rider if you want to sound like a deadhead, but reducing it to two words with a silent segue notation erases perhaps the most important part, the transition. 
As my friend Rob Mitchum, who co-hosts the 36 from the Vault podcast, once put it, I'd be happy living my life in the space between China Cat Sunflower and I Know You Rider. And appropriate for the Paris version on Europe 72, like all of Gaul, it's divided into three parts. The band debuted the song in early 1968 and released it on Oxymoxoa in 1969. But the lyrics had been written in 1967, one of three poems Robert Hunter sent to Garcia from New Mexico that transformed their deep friendship into a deep working relationship as songwriting partners. Though China Cat Sunflower itself was written in several other locales. Maybe someday we'll get to annotate the lyrics, but today we'll just offer Robert Hunter's story about how he wrote them. Our good buddy Steve Silberman recently uncovered an amazing 1992 interview he conducted with Hunter, and we'll surely find other windows in which to share parts. But Hunter discussed both the skill set and circumstances under which he wrote China Cat Sunflower. Thank you for this, Steve. I am able to translate people's uh, scat. Uh, I hear English in it. It's, it's almost as though, as though I write down what, what I hear underneath that. I hear, I hear the intention. I don't work that way a lot. I would work more if, uh, that way happily if more people uh, were to give me uh, scats. I, it's, it's a talent like the rubric cube or something mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. It's something you can do or you can't do, and it, com- it comes easily to me, mm-hmm. and which might be why I like uh, language poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, I can uh, tell from the rhythms uh, or lack of rhythms, uh, the, from the... Uh, what do you call them, the disjunctures mm-hmm. and the end stoppages. I, I, know, I know what they're avoiding saying uh, or, mm. what, or, 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 or the meaning that they would like to not be having there comes mm. rushing through to me. I mean, mm. I, it's, uh, I can read this stuff. Uh, the text behind the text. Am I? Yeah, you know, I understand dogs, you know, I can talk to babies. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. I, it was a cat dictated China cat sunflower to me. How did that happen? But just sitting on my stomach, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. purring away, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, saying this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's easy to just write it down. I guess it's plagiarism. Yes, Robert Hunter did just say that a cat dictated China Cat Sunflower to him. While we thank David Gans for digitizing that last tape, we also thank him for this next clip from his own 1977 interview with Hunter, getting further into the mechanics of what Steve later defined in Skeleton Key as cat dictation. The germ of it came... Uh, in uh, Mexico, in Ahahik, I was staying on Lake Chapala. I don't think any of the words for it came exactly. I think the rhythms for it came there. I was writing things uh, to these rhythms. Subsequently, in Palo Alto, I put some of the rhythms into it. These images, I had a cat sitting on my belly at one point and was in a rather hypersensitive state. 
and followed the cat out to, uh, I believe it was Neptune, but I'm not sure. And uh, there were rainbows across Neptune and cats marching across, across this rainbow like that. I remember that. And this cat was just taking me in all, the, all these cat places. So there's some essence of that in it. <laughs> all right, I wrote part of it in Mexico and part of it on Neptune. No doubt, my dude. But in the 90s, Hunter posted the original handwritten lyric draft for China Cat Sunflower on his website. And on the same sheet of paper, just below it, the original poem for what became the Eleven. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. They're unquestionably some of Hunter's most psychedelic lyrics, one of the only songs from that period to survive nearly the entirety of the band's career. In part, that's probably because of the jam they figured out for the song. Bob Weir plays the song's dominant lick, though he said that Garcia wrote it. The jam became one of the first where Weir would contribute co-leads along with Garcia, a perfect example of his not-quite-rhythm guitar playing. When they debuted China Cat Sunflower in 1968, it always segued into the Eleven. But once the Eleven settled into a nearly monogamous relationship with St. Stephen, the Dead seemed determined to find a new destination for China Cat Sunflower, learning how to jam on the song while attempting to make the jam transition into something else. A few times each, they tried doing that rag, high time, and morning dew. Nothing stuck until the fall of that year. This version of the transition from November 8, 1969, at the Fillmore Auditorium on Dick's Pick 16, is pretty enthused. That sense of elation is palpable, and the I Know You Rider payoff is an early draft of what most post-1969 deadheads might recognize. By 1972, they had it down and played it most nights of the Europe tour, seemingly determined to capture it. The version from Paris is take number eight. To talk about what makes that payoff so powerful, please welcome back musicologist Sean O'Donnell, taking dictation from Frankie the Cat. When you're coming out of the final verse, you're doing the same old move to D, the, the, the dominant of your G mixolydian that you were in. And... Uh, you could just go back. It could be another post-verse lead that then takes you right back. So you're, you're, you're on D already. And then there's a moment where you realize, no, we're not going back. Now, if you know the tune, of course, you're already ready for it to not go back. You've already heard this pairing a bunch of times, but, but still, harmonically, it could just return. 
in the same old way. So through sheer force of will, they're they're not going back. And as soon as they're not going back, even though they don't go somewhere new, you're like, oh, we're off and we're going somewhere. It's really hard to pull off convincingly, like to not stagnate. They roll into a thing where we're moving, but we haven't gone anywhere in terms of the sort of pitch content, you know, the harmony. And so we sit on this D or D7 for a while, and everybody is just doing sort of unstable D7-ish things. Uh, so it feels like a jam, but not harmonically, it's a one chord jam. And so you, you, you have to make that convincingly sound like it arrived somewhere. I'd like to say there's some moment, you know, music analyst, it's like, oh, they did this and they used this chord progression and suddenly they, they were there. And it's not a case of that. You kind of get there through little incremental changes. So the bass and drums kind of slip into the pulse of Ryder long before we get there. Bob does a few familiar riffs, sort of the, the most notable one would be those high triads he does where he does C to D back and forth. like a clear marker like oh we've arrived but there's still a fair amount of music after that where we we don't actually arrive yet so it's really just like a landmark like oh we're, we're almost there we're, we're getting there um and then it, it's a little bit of role reversal since bob is taking the control for that whole passage and then jerry kicks in a little before Ryder comes it's sort of like oh we're Things are returning to normal in some way. We had this destabilization of everyone was doing something a little different. Um, and then he takes over leading the way. And then that's when they finally kick into it, but, but it's still on a D chord. The groove has to change, but they, they could have just changed the groove. Uh, so, so reinterpreting a chord like that happens fairly commonly in, in music, but usually it's, okay, we're just going to reinterpret it and go. The, the, the thing that's different here is they reinterpret it and say, yeah, we're going to live in this crack between the two songs for a while. And you have this sense of onward motion the whole time. Like you're moving, but you're going around the block. At least until the song changes. I know you are miss me when I go. 
Now the Grateful Dead are playing I Know You Rider. It was a song the dead had been playing for a long time, one of the very first folk numbers they electrified as the Warlocks. It features on the oldest tape of the band, the Autumn Records demo recorded under the name The Emergency Crew in 1965, now on Birth of the Dead. Back then, it was a little fast. And that's more or less how it sounded in the electric versions on tape between 1965 and the summer of 1967, when it disappeared for two years before meeting China Cat. But before we go any further, let's talk about where I Know You Rider really comes from. It's listed everywhere as a traditional song. And while there's a chance it's actually that, the song's history is far more complex. This is the earliest recorded version. Well, I know you, Ryder. You're gonna miss me when I'm gone. Oh, yes, I know you, Ryder, gonna miss me when I'm gone. Gonna miss your ever loving mama from rolling in your arms. If that doesn't sound like a version from the dawn of recording back in the early 20th century, it's because it's not. The first officially released version of I Know You, Rider was recorded in 1960 by Tosi Aaron. Though it would explode into the folk world, in some senses, it was in part a new song. The song first appears in the 1934 edition of John Lomax's American Ballads and Folk Songs under the title Woman Blue, prefaced with a note, an 18-year-old black girl, in prison for murder, sang the tune and the first stanza of these blues. This is followed by a transcribed melody and lyrics, and then a number of other verses collected elsewhere, some of which turn up in the dead version, some of which don't. Many of the songs that Alan and John Lomax found during their decades of song collecting showed up in multiple variants, or have since emerged from other song collectors or sets of recordings. This is not the case with Woman Blue. That is, there is a greater than average chance that I Know You Rider is not a traditional song at all, but written in a recognizable way by an unnamed black woman at Parchman Farm in Mississippi or Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana, either by the woman who sang it to the Lomaxes or someone else nearby. I corresponded with Todd Harvey at the Library of Congress, who notes, The repertoire of the Parchman Women's Penitentiary is barely known. The song could have been common currency around that camp, just as Rosie was in the men's camp. So that's our theory. Woman Blue, a.k.a. I Know You Rider, was written in a fundamental way by an unnamed black woman in a prison camp in the early 1930s and sung for John and Alan Lomax of the Library of Congress in the summer of 1933 by her or someone who probably knew her. Though they would become famed for their field recordings, they'd only, just a month before, acquired a 315-pound recording machine and disc cutter that required another 75-pound battery to operate. No recording of Woman Blue survives, however, Probably, it was taken down the even more old-school way, with Alan Lomax himself capturing the words on paper with his transcription of the melody. After the Lomaxes published it in 1934, though, it was nearly another quarter century before the song was heard from again. 
During that thick, heavy period of folk song collecting that also contained two separate folk song booms, the song form of I Know You Rider didn't surface. It was in the mid-1950s, though, that a collegiate folk singer named Bob Coltman found it in the Lomax book. I resurrected and debuted the song, he wrote. I followed the tune given in Lomax, roughly but not exactly, changed the song from a woman's to a man's point of view, dropped two verses, and was its first arranger. Coltman spread the tune from there, but it made one more important evolution before it got to the version we know. In the summer of 1958, Bob Coltman taught the song to Harry Tuft. Please welcome from the Denver Folklore Center, Harry Tuft. Bob Coltman, who took the words out of a Lomax book, added a melody from another source and gave it to me in this way. I know I'm gonna miss me when I'm gone. I know you rather gonna Miss me when I'm gone Gonna miss your moon Rolling in your arms Well, I... So that's the song that I sang when sitting around Dick Weissman's apartment in 19... Oh, maybe summer of 1960 when Dick was uh, working with John Phillips and Scott McKenzie to start The Journeyman. And I, I, there were a number of songs that I sang that John liked. Um, he liked this one a lot. But John had that gift of uh, arrangement. And so from that very simple, straightforward one, he just added a few chords that really made all the difference. And it's the fact that he added those chords to what is now the way the song is sung today that really is the proof that this was sort of the lineage of uh, I Know You Writer. So he added, came out like this. Um, I lay down last night Trying to get my rest I lay down last night Trying to get my rest my mind kept rambling like wild geese in the west. Yes, the reprehensible John Phillips, later of the Mamas and the Papas, also credited with writing Me and My Uncle, and who we discussed in our Side C episode of our Skull and Roses season. Oi, fucking John Phillips. Phillips never recorded the song nor took credit for it, but by 1963, it sounded pretty familiar. Well, I know you right ago. Miss me when I'm gone Well, I know you right I'm gonna miss me when I'm gone You're gonna miss your daddy rolling in your arms Well, the sun's gonna shine on my back door someday I said the sun's gonna shine on me San Francisco after the tour, the band whittled it down to three versions of the China Cat Sunflower I Know You Rider combination, Copenhagen, Hamburg, and Paris, 
and picked Paris. Garcia, Weir, and Lesh overdubbed entirely new vocals on July 13th at Alembic, with Garcia apparently making another pass on August 8th. Though Donna didn't sing on Ryder during the tour, she's on the studio track sheet, sharing track 12 with Weir, with the parenthetical a cappella. Maybe she's in the mix here? I know you gonna miss me when had a few lives in the Dead's repertoire. In 1970, just after they'd attached it to China Cat Sunflower, it became part of the band's acoustic sets, like this one from Harper College, May 2nd, 1970, on Dick's Picks 8. I know you're While adjacent to Judy Hensky's arrangement and vibe, it still used the John Phillips melody. Besides the 1970 acoustic sets and the versions that led to Europe 72, in 1973 and 1974, the band migrated the so-called feeling groovy jam into the transition, sometimes called the Uncle John's jam, but those are different chords, making for a number of extra jammy segues. This one is from June 28, 1974 on Dick's Picks 12, where it was labeled Mind Left Body Jam with some perfectly inscrutable Latvalian logic. And so China Rider lived happily ever after for the most part, a constant in the repertoire nearly every year through 1995. It wasn't the only song they caught during that first set on the first night in Paris. Despite its title, lyrics, and pretty much everything about it, Tennessee Jet is in some ways the most European song on Europe 72. This is from David Gans's wonderful 1977 interview with lyricist Robert Hunter, published in David's great book, Conversations with the Dead, available from perfectible.net. Thanks for this, David. Oh, it was Barcelona. I keep thinking it was Madrid, but it was, it was Barcelona. Christy and I were out until all hours drinking uh, vino tinto, we were staggering back to our uh, hotel that night. There's this church, this, this little alleyway, and a very, very high church building on, on either side so that, so that it's ca- very cavernous. You know, and like any sound you make walking down the street just resonates and resonates. And there's this guy walking ahead of us, 
playing mouth harp, you know, twang, 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 and I was good and drunk, and I started, fell four flats and broke my spine, twang, 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 come quick with the iodine, and it was so out of place in Barcelona at two o'clock, this guy walking half a block down, and I just made the verses up when I got back to the hotel room, I just jotted them down like that, and that's how that happened. It's a good place to write a country song, it was, it was, it, it's, it, it had that feeling of uh, whatever country feeling or whatever kind of thing it had was just like so absurd in the context of Barcelona like that that it, that it became realer than real. I wrote a, a good really deal there. I wrote um, that uh, Won't You Sing Melinda, Won't You Sing For Me, like that. Um, looking down into uh, the street in Barcelona while the rain was falling. And it was just, it was just really lovely. You know, good experience. Now that you've heard that description, Try not to hear the twang of the jaw harp in the song's main guitar riff that echoes every line. Cold iron shackles, ball and chain. Listen to the whistle of the evening train. You know you about to wind up dead. As we well know here at the Deadcast, Robert Hunter was deeply studied in the American folkways, pulling out references to songs and movies and pop culture ephemera. But was he tuned into this when he was four years old? Here he goes, Tennessee! Get him! Got him! Dead center! That's Jed Sloan! Tennessee Jet, deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the Western Plains. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday, by the bakers of Enriched Tip Top. It's entirely possible he was. Tennessee Jed hits target, assessed a representative from the J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency in the trade publication Radio Showmanship, declaring Tennessee Jed to be the number two children's radio show in the New York area. Starring Elton Britt, who played and yodeled the role of Tennessee Jed, it aired on 25 stations nationwide, perhaps including one in listening range of young Robert Hunter. Or maybe Hunter was referencing the 60s Midwestern food franchise, Tennessee Jed's Open Pit Barbecue. Jury's out, really. But that's an incredibly American folk lineage indeed. From white bread-sponsored yodeling children's radio cowboy, to barbecue joint namesake, to stone slow-motion boogie. Drink all Blair Jackson once asked Garcia about the roots of the original songs on Europe 72, like Ramble on Rose and Tennessee Jed. Garcia told him, I haven't the slightest idea. They just come out of my mind. Sometimes I think, yeah, this is kind of like a record I once heard somewhere, but I never find them. The rhythms come from my background in rhythm and blues more than anything else, but they also come from a kind of rhythmically hip country and western style, like Jerry Reed and people like that, Memphis more than Nashville. 
Some of the old California country and Western stuff, old Buck Owens, had some nifty rhythmic ideas in it, as opposed to the old 4-4 stuff just plunking away. Tennessee Jed is a cop from that world, although not consciously, and it's not from any specific tune, just the feel. Don Rich's solo on Love's Gonna Live Here Again by Buck Owens. If you can imagine Robert Hunter extrapolating a set of lyrics from a cat's meows, imagine Jerry Garcia deriving a songwriting style from the guitar breaks of early 60s country music. When Tennessee Jed debuted in the fall of 71, it was a few clicks faster than how it settled for the album take. This is from Chicago, October 22, 1971, from Dave's Picks 3. Rich man, step on my forehead When you get back, you better butter my bread Well, you know, it's like I said You better head back to Tennessee The Paris version they used on the album was take number eight. Other contenders were versions from Empire Pool and Amsterdam. Garcia, Lesh, and Weir did their overdubs back home at Alembic on July 11, 1972, Garcia leaving his original vocal on the tape as well. When David Crosby called the Grateful Dead's music Electric Dixieland, I don't know if he was literally thinking of Tennessee Jed, but it's how I hear it. And after the Europe 72 version, it kept slowing down, and the Electric Dixieland gets more prominent with more and more rhythmic space opened up for everyone to happily bounce and tootle together. Like this version from Eugene, January 22, 1978. Now Dave's Picks 23. gets slower from there. Salt to taste. It was a particularly Garcia-esque groove, one blessed by the legendary drummer and vocalist Levon Helm, the first song on his final album, Electric Dirt, from 2009. A rich man step on my poor head When you get back you better butter my bread Back to Paris, 1972. Philippe Sicard. It was uh, something organic, you know. Like some, at times, I couldn't, I couldn't say, "What's this sound from? Is it Jerry? Is it where? Is it?" Uh, it's, it was impossible to. Sometimes it was just a mix. It was a, a whole thing, you know. A whole, just a whole. It was organic. It was. Uh, 
and I was really in love with the texture of the of the sounds. The Dead played Merle Haggard's Sing Me Back Home a few times in 1971, but this was the first time with Donna Jean Godshow. Out in the tape truck, Wiz noted on the tape box, Sing Me Back Home is worthy. Several versions would be pulled for album consideration. It was strange because at the end of the first set, uh, the first night on the third, after they they played uh, Casey Jones, just before the, the intermission, People then thought it was the end, you know. <laughs> and, and I remember Bob Weir was uh, telling them, it's, it's just uh, 20 minutes, we're going to be back, and it's intermission. Intermission. <laughs> intermission. But people didn't understand. <laughs> they didn't understand him, so they were leaving the theater, and then they, they understood afterwards that it was just a, the intermission. Fortunately for them. Fortunately. The second set on the first night in Paris included a monster hour-long truckin' other one wharf rat sequence with me and Bobby McGee inside. Though the version of truckin' on Europe 72 is from London at the end of the tour, the Paris version was the only version highlighted on the mixes made at the tour's end. It's pretty tight. The second set also included another classic dead track featured on Europe 72. We can share the women, we can share the wine. We can share what we got of you. Jack Straw debuted in the fall of 1971, alongside Tennessee Jed and the other new original songs destined for Europe 72. The story of two outlaws on the run, discovering their own morality and mortality, continued on in the mode Robert Hunter discovered circa Working Man's Dead. Over the course of 1971, Bob Weir and Robert Hunter had a much ballyhooed creative falling out. In one version, Hunter couldn't stand what Weir did to Sugar Magnolia, which was discussed in our American Beauty season, but they kept working together after that, at least long enough to have another battle over the song that became One More Saturday Night, with Hunter removing his name from the credits. So it was that Jack Straw became the last Hunter-Weir collaboration for some 20 years, and some of the tweaks might be Weir's. 
We've posted links at dead.net slash deadcast to both Hunter's original handwritten lyrics and Alex Allen's close look at the song. There was one change in the song's presentation that did alter it in a revealing way. I just jumped the watch Right outside the fence Took his rings for bucks and chains Now ain't that heaven sent Hurts my ears to listen That was the Hamburg version of Jack Straw, just a few days before the album take. You may notice that Bob Weir takes both of the vocals in the song's B section. The same is true on the version from The Second Night in Paris. At the vocal overdub sessions over the summer, Jerry Garcia added his lines. I just jumped the watchman Right outside the fence Took his rings for months and change Ain't that heaven sent Six days later in Amsterdam, Garcia began singing his parts live, with a few stumbles, and we are occasionally forgetting that Garcia had taken over some lines. This next number you get the pleasure of watching me blank out and sing Garcia's part. The two vocal parts seem to represent the dialogue of two different characters, Garcia singing the part of Shannon, and Weir singing the part of Jack Straw himself. Weir, Garcia, and Lesh did a vocal overdub session at Alembic on July 12th, and then wiped those for another session on August 7th. On July 10th, before the vocal work began, Weir added an additional track of guitar to the mix, taking up the space where the new lead vocal track would often go. As such, all the vocals on the box set are overdubs, with Weir, Garcia, and Lesh harmonizing in the same room where they recorded Working Man's Dead. Sounds great. After the song's release on Europe 72, there were a few more changes. One small, one large. During the spring of 74, Weir and Garcia added a little harmonized guitar intro that stuck around. Like this. That was from June 23, 1974 in Miami. Now Dave's picks 34, a few days after the intro's debut. And Weir did change a lyric occasionally to reference their new label boss, Clive Davis, like this version from the Philadelphia Spectrum in 79, Road Trips Volume 1, Number 1. We used to play for silver, now we play for Clive. One was bold and one for blood at the bottom of Used to play for silver, now we play for Clive didn't last too long, only a bit in 1979 and 1980, with a few versions where Weir sang used to play for Acid, now we play for Clive. Makes for some fun folklore. The bigger change came after the band returned to the road in the later 70s with Mickey Hart back in tow on a second drum kit. From there, Jack Straw evolved from a minimalist psychedelic spaghetti western to a full-on shoot-em-up Hollywood blockbuster. This is from October 10, 1980 at the Warfield in San Francisco, released on the expanded Dead set with a little extra Garcia juice and double drummer thunder. (laughs) 
feel more intense than how they did it in Paris in 72. Here's the entirety of that jam peak. There were seats only. There were there was no space for for dancing at all. I've never been to many shows, uh, rock shows in France, more in England and the States, but not in France. But uh, usually people are seated, especially in a theater like uh, Olympia. But people were very exulting. They were, as you can hear, maybe on the on the on the CDs of those shows. Uh, people are really. Uh, they are getting mad at the end. Almost every night was Saturday in the spring of 72, this particular one falling on a Wednesday. The band received a telegram at the Grand Hotel the next day from a fan named Mark Princey, which has survived in the Grateful Dead archives. It read, in its entirety, You are the best thing to hit Paris since Joan of fucking Ark. Love and thanks. I've laughed over this telegram for years, and sad that I was only recently able to locate Mark Princey online, and a few months too late. Mark apparently passed away around Thanksgiving of 2021. Much love to his family and friends. We've linked to a colorful obituary at dead.net slash deadcast. The second night at the Olympia would become legendary too. According to the Rolling Stone report, the cops scaled back their presence considerably. In fact, the dead would catch another Europe 72 song, but it was legendary for other reasons. Let's start with Steve Parrish, just recovered from his big trip to and at the Louvre. We're at the Olympic Theater now, and we set up, and I'm sitting on the drum riser, and I'm smoking a joint, a big fat farmer, and I'm dropping this knife into the stage right there where I'm sitting on the edge of our riser, boom, boom. And then I pick, pulling it out and I look down and there's the two shiny shoes of a gendarme. I knew right away it's the cop, no question about it. I go up to blue trousers and then he's standing there with a machine gun. The French cops, at those days, they brought machine guns. They had these briefcase submachine guns, man. It was so cool, but they, all were carrying them at the fucking concert because they say, I said, why are you guys carrying these machine guns? They said, riot, riot. You know, they always thought they thought anything to do with rock and roll was a riot. So anyway, he's looking at the knife. I got the knife in one hand, a felony. That's a felony in the United States at the time. And a joint the other. That was eight years in San Quentin. So I'm going, oh, man, I'm fucked, man. And he goes, Monsieur, Monsieur, your cigarette? No, 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 no. And I thought, oh, shit, I better put it out. You know, and he, he didn't even know that it was marijuana. He thought, God, have you ever smelled a Galois or a fucking Jetane French cigarettes? They, they smell like stinkweed, man. And so he didn't even care. He thought I was smoking some kind of cigarette. He didn't even care about that. He didn't give a fuck about the knife. He pointed to a sign. And because I spent about 10 minutes in French class without cutting it, I knew that what he meant up there, the sign meant, you know, no smoking. And so I said, okay, man, okay, I ain't going to smoke anymore. Don't worry. But then I took another turn. There are a few accounts of the blowout that ensued. Let's start with Donna Jean. Hey, Donna. 
that was in Paris at the Olympia Theater. And what had happened was the acid that we were taking from Owsley, we were in Europe for quite a while. And so it, it got less and less strong because it was older. Though Owsley was in jail, his LSD supply continued to fuel the dead. And so, you know, I was sometimes taking 15 hits at a time. It was just normal, normal, normal. And then I didn't realize that Owsley had brought in a new batch, and I took like 15-something hits, and it was fresh. (laughs) Owsley was in prison, and so it befell Ramrod to get our stash of psychedelics together. Ramrod, bless his heart, was trying to make the right batch up for us in a liquid form, and it was 10 times stronger than what we took home. And so at home, you took either one drop or two, you know, and that was like a a pretty considered a a major dose of acid. So here in Europe, we couldn't figure out why we were getting so fucked up, you know, and everybody was on it, man. Everybody was taking it there. And it was because it was 10 times stronger. And so these massive LSD experiences were happening, too. Alan Trist of Ice Nine Publishing was along for this ride. I do remember in, in in Paris at that gig, I think we were all a little bit high on that gig at Paris and seeing things through special eyes. And um, I do remember watching Keith for hours play the piano. It was an extraordinary experience. We were all quite out there and... Uh, and, and uh, Keith was really expressing his music through his whole body. He had a large frame. And I found myself underneath Keith's piano, which was, you know, the nine-foot Steinway, and just grooving to the Grateful Dead. Oh, man! You know, and I was just in this world of listening to the Grateful Dead. You know, God, this is great. And then when I... <laughs> when I I remembered that I was in the band, and somehow I I got up, and I I did it. So where in the show did this happen? Let's not think too hard about it. But Donna didn't have too many vocal slots yet. She sang on the show opening, Greatest Story Ever Told, and a few songs near the end of the night. But I'd bet this is the song Donna had to get out from under the piano to sing. To this day, I don't know how I got up and got to the microphone and sang. I, I don't know. But somehow I did get up there and finish the, the concert. But that was an eye-opener for me. <laughs> she was and is a total pro. Courtney Pollock didn't have that problem. He came with his own supply. I like the clear light, which is the, the, the window pane, the original window pane. They're about an eight-inch square, clear little panes. And they were 200 mics each. And they were absolutely super, super. I'd never had anything as good. Because I was friends with the creator of, of the clear light, so 
I used to trade him a mandala for a thousand hits. Good exchange rate. I went to Persia. I had some nice clothes that my girlfriend at the time had handmade for me, and they were beautiful. They were, well, they were velvets and silks. I, I looked like a million bucks with long hair. <laughs> and, um, and of course, I was a, you know, an object of curiosity in Persia. I had no money to speak of, but I had a thousand hits of clear light on me. <laughs> so I was able to get around just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> I had it in a rose patch on the back of my pants, the <laughs> ones I was wearing. No matter where you got your acid, or didn't, this was one of those nights. And not just on stage. Philippe Sicar went back for the second show. My favorite was the fourth, because of Dark Star. I'm a... For me, Dark Star is the, is the best. I was in, in a special state, as if I was uh, really uh, high uh, not only because it was the dead, but because when they began to play, it, it was it was a, a whole trip. I was so happy, <laughs> and I, I remember I was in love with a, an English woman uh, who was in London, who had seen the dead before me because uh, the, she was the the second Wembley um, gig on uh, April eighth. Uh, she told me, oh. Jerry Garcia is a genius, and she wasn't that attracted to uh, pop music or rock or whatever. That she was more into classical music, but mm-hmm. she she told me that she liked Jerry Garcia very much. He played so well in Paris. One, uh, especially during dark, I remember it was I, I can remember it was during Dark Star on the fourth, the second night. I thought of, of my loved one in London. I thought it was the the apex of my life, you know. I don't know. I thought it was in paradise, really. It's really hard to... It was something big, something big right. in my heart, in my soul. As I said, it was one of those nights. Please welcome back Graham Boone. Listen to Bob's soft vamping, beautiful voicings, and then Jerry takes off on his solo. Hitting high A, and then we're away from the Dark Star progression. Beautiful exploratory moment. This is a long and dreamy dark star filled with long and dreamy episodes. I'll note that, like me, and probably like you, Graham doesn't really like when people chomp over the music either. But I love having Graham point out the changing constellations of dark star in real time. Plus, you can always listen later on without all of our chomping via compact disc, cassette tape, your local streaming service, or even the World Wide Web. Back to Graham. In the middle of a really active spacey jam, Listen to that rolling sound of Keith's piano playing. Picked up by Jerry with some rolling riffs. Seems like we might be in the key of D major. Always interesting for me, the way they settle in different places. But then they keep going.
wheelchair or getting to a rivet that starts to drive the jam. You can hear the different guys responding to what Jerry's doing. Wonderful responses from Bill. Jerry takes off from there. Phil, super active. Beautiful chords from Bob. Glorious. So much energy, but so free at the same time. One of my favorite things about this Dark Star is the drum break. And more specifically, why it's almost inaccurate to call it a drum break. The band is just floating through freeness and dissolve into a segment of Billy Kreutzmann, the so-called Gang of One, playing solo. And if you can call it a drum solo, it's one of the chiller drum solos in rock. And it doesn't get much flashier from there. I like the moment in the second part of the jam where Lesh leads the band into the so-called feeling groovy theme. Garcia perhaps suggests it's time to slide back into Dark Star. casts the deciding vote, and they soar into a great feeling groovy jam. This is from a little bit later, with almost a slight flavor of the 11. In fact, if you acquired the 2012 record store date release of this Dark Star, you can flip directly to Europe 72 side D to hear what happens next. In the midst of the Paris chaos, they managed to track the version of Sugar Magnolia that began Side D of Europe 72. You can hear the last few notes of Dark Star. 
the song had changed a good deal since its appearance on American Beauty two years earlier. Over the course of two years of performances, the band's smooth, weirs, Cajun-influenced groove into a powerful set-closer. We went pretty deep into the writing and long evolution of Sugar Magnolia in our episode during the American Beauty season, and we'll refer you back there for the nitty-gritty of how the Sunshine Daydream Coda emerged as a piece of music of its own, especially after Jerry Garcia added a wah-wah pedal to his arsenal. On the Europe 72 version, you can hear Don and Gene singing during the song's finale. Sunshine Daydream Like Garcia's Jack Straw vocal, that's a post-tour addition. On August 4th, back at Alembic, Weir added a new guitar part, unusual for the album. On August 7th, Weir, Garcia, and Lesh overdubbed new vocals. On August 8th, an uncredited member of the band edited Maracas, and Donna Jean added her own vocal part. From then on, she sang on the live versions of the song as well. One more Wednesday night, but it was far from over. Steve Parrish. The fucking union crew didn't want to talk to Candace. She got in a tiff with them, as usual, and they didn't want to take orders from a woman. They were very angry. And so as soon as the band stopped playing, and this is a night we all picked to take a lot of acid. I don't think Ben and Candace did, but we did. The crew guys, Ramrod, myself, Jackson, Kid, and her. Yeah, we were pretty high. Alan Trist. The loadout was particularly interesting. I, <laughs> I, know, I remember Rex Jackson <laughs> all over the place, but we managed to. And now we still hadn't figured out the LSD mystery. And we're high as a kite, man. The whole crew, I mean, and the band leaves. They're done with the show at this beautiful Olympic, Olympic theater, which was really a rough load in. And now the union decides to fuck with us. They shut the lights off in the building and they drop the truss, the lighting truss, right on our cables, man, pinning everything to the floor and, and a fucking heavy truss. And then they split. And I grabbed this one Frenchman. I go, where are you going, man? And he just, all he started doing was fucking around with his hair and playing games and telling me about Candace yelling at him. And they split. 
and left us in the dark, man. And I'm talking about a cobblestone way to load out. And so now we sat down in the front row, myself, Jackson, and Kid, and Sonny Hurd, and we're staring at the gear. We didn't know what to fucking do. We were so high, and this fucking big truss is there. We must have sat there for about a half hour. It felt longer. And I don't know, man. I just snapped, and I stood up, and I said, no, these guys are not getting the better of me. And I just, one at a time, man, I took every cable, I unplugged it from the amp, and then I snaked it through underneath this fucking truss and, you know, got it out one at a time, rolled them up, man, made the pile like I knew it was. The guys were just sitting there watching me till one by one at a time they got up. Once I had all the cables out from under that truss, and then we had to lift everything over that and take them down a dark, alleyway and cobblestones we had one flashlight in the truck and we loaded that truck man to the end it took us hours man finally people started helping me one at a time but not everybody the trucks were loaded and ready to roll to the next show two and a half hours north near the belgian border but there was another twist the band's original itinerary had this show listed at the leal opera house but the gig was actually rescheduled nearby which brings me to a side note Before I try to pronounce the location of the show, I'd like to offer a blanket apology to all native speakers of French, German, Dutch, Danish, Swiss, and English for any words or proper names that I may have mangled during this transcontinental season of the Deadcast, especially if you were a guest and the mangling involved your name. With that in mind, the Dead's 5th of May show was rescheduled from the Lille Opera House to the Rotunda in the adjoining town, Fastuminil, just outside Lille. It would have taken place on the seventh anniversary of the very first Warlock show in 1965. Not that probably any of the guys in the band remembered that. And not that the gig happened. This is from David Gans and Marty Martinez's great 1995 interview with Bob Weir and Phil Lesh. It started the night before in Paris where uh, a couple of communists decided uh, decided that everybody should be able to go to the show for free. This is when we were playing in the Olympia Theater in Paris, which held, what, uh, 1,500 people, if that. Maybe maybe more like eight. Now, he decided this in stark ignorance of the economics of the matter. He got shown the door, too. And um, that didn't didn't pretty up his mindset any. So uh, he decided what he was going to do was... uh, in the uh, in the gas tank of our diesel truck. Actually, he didn't do that until after the show when we went back to the hotel. Oh, right. oh yeah, that's right. And uh, Rex and Sonny and I were, and I up, think were up on the balcony. And we poured and a uh, somebody of water I on don't him. remember who poured no not not a bucket of water chocolate ice cream on his mauve velvet jacket. This was this one is a communist communist, oh, communist yeah. wearing a, a mauve velvet jacket. It was very very chic. Bourgeois communist? Is that... Is that uh, it's that, not a contradiction yeah. in terms, apparently. In France. Yeah. I mean, they, the sky's the limit. <laughs> and Rosie McGee. After, I think we had two nights or three nights in Paris at the yeah. Olympia Theater. Yeah. Two nights at the Olympia Theater. And um, the next gig was in Lille, which is an industrial town. How many miles north of Paris? I don't remember how far it is. And... Um, during the night, or what? At the last Olympia gig, there was a Frenchman uh, outside our hotel after the gig, yelling up at the windows about that the concert should have been free, 
and uh, you know he was very upset and screaming and yelling and whatever. So Jackson, Rex Jackson, was eating ice cream in his hotel room, and the windows did open, and he dropped ice cream on the guy. And the guy had a very fancy velvet jacket, which is legendary now. And that really upset him so badly. After the chocolate ice cream came down on his jacket, I think he got a little... Uh, miffed, and so that it ticked was, him off a bit. That was, I think, the final trigger that caused him to a or b put water in the diesel fuel tanks of our trucks, so that our equipment couldn't go anywhere. So he went out and he pissed in the in the uh, the fuel tank of the truck. That was his Parisian method of uh, complaining about his treatment, you know. And, uh, of course, the truck was driving the next day. We were playing in Lille in northern France. And, of course, it got halfway there. And when it, you know, had gone through the petrol and got to the piss, of course, trucks don't run on piss. So the truck broke down, right? And so the next next morning, everybody got up. (laughs) The truck headed out of town first, bright and early. And then we all got up and got on the bus and headed to Lyon. Lille. Lille. Oh, Lille. Right, right. Right by the Belgian border, yeah. And, um, well, the, the truck made it about eight miles out of Paris, and it broke down, and that was that, and that was that. But we didn't know this. Somebody had put, I believe, sugar in the gas tank, and it was not a mystery who had done it, to, to their thinking. But the truck wouldn't run. But by the time they discovered this, the band, including me, had already taken off for Leo. In the venue was a room full of fans, most of them waiting to see their first Dead show. Please welcome to the Dead cast, Daniel Duchesne. Uh, we were three, three friends. We are great fans of the Dead. So we bought tickets for Fash uh, to Menil for the concert that was planned on the uh, 5th May 72. Uh, Philip's father uh, take, uh, drove us by car. The Bozo bus at least made it to the hotel in Lille, and by then, knew what happened to the truck. Jerry Garcia stayed behind, but some of his bandmates pressed on to the venue anyway. The concert was planned uh, uh, on uh, 8 or uh, 9 p.m., uh, so uh, we, were, uh, we were in the, the hall, and we, we waited uh, for hours uh, because uh, the dead was not there. <laughs> we arrived. We arrived at the uh, at the hall in Lille to a mob of irate Frenchmen <laughs> shouting, uh, "Power to know, the people!" and <laughs> "We shall overcome!" <laughs> Anti-American <laughs> stuff. Uh, the, the, the equipment truck never arrived, so we had to cancel it. There was almost a riot. One of the trucks made it though, with the recording gear and the lighting system. This is from Blair Jackson's great interview with Dennis Wiz Leonard. Check out Blair's book, Garcia, in American Life. We got there, and, you know, it was, it was crazy. The carpet was down. The carpet lived in the um, recording truck as well. Mm-hmm. The carpet, the snake was in the venue, the lights were up, and yeah. that's it, man. Lightning director Candace Brightman. Ben and I set up. We had everything, you know, we had all the whole lighting system up, and the audience came in and 
no band. No band showed up. And these people weren't, they weren't like a Grateful Dead. They were like, hey, we're, you know, we've waited long enough. They were, they were about to be violent. There was an audience and there was, uh, you know, the place was full and there was no equipment. Because the, the, and they, you know, it wasn't cell phones and all of that, you know. The, the communication wasn't there. Uh, maybe they were able to get a hold of somebody and say, hey, we had to go get another truck. We're, you know, we're not going to be able to get there. Or they just, for a while, they didn't know. The equipment just wasn't there and the gig had started or the time for the gig had passed and the audience was getting restless. And um, Phil, and, and so they, they were going to cancel the gig. And Phil, I think it was Phil and Bobby, went out. And why they didn't ask me to go out and speak French for them is a mystery unless they were thinking to protect me <laughs> from the rowdy locals. I don't know. The audience was pretty pissed off. We waited uh, till midnight or 1, uh, 1 a.m. We were very frustrated. And uh, since, uh, since it was deemed that my French was uh, the best in the crew, the best in the group, I, uh, I was uh, awarded the onerous uh, <laughs> signal honor <laughs> uh, of explaining uh, it to a howling to, mob to go out and tell a howling mob that hey <laughs> folks no show tonight <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> and that, ben and i had to strike the gear while looking like we were setting up gear which i don't know how we did but we did that we we would bring things out from backstage and then i'll take a, away part of the lighting so then they were sitting in a room with a bunch of weird shit on the stage that had nothing to do with the Grateful Dead. Courtney Pollock and his girlfriend were there. None of our crew spoke fluent French, so they sent my girlfriend out because she spoke uh, English, Persian, and French. Because she was French, Swiss, and Persian in her heritage. Anyway, so she went out, brave as you please, with this wonderful cultured accent because she came from a highly cultured family and uh, told the crowd, which were already, you know, way, they'd been waiting a long time, waiting for the music to start, and of course it was not going to start. Sam asked if, <laughs> if she'd get out there and tell them that <laughs> they weren't going to have a concert. They could get their tickets, they could redeem their tickets, you know, get their money back or apply to, you know, the next gig elsewhere. Meanwhile, she stepped out there onto the stage. You know, she got you know, very self-confident. Uh, person announces to the angry crowd that there won't be a concert, the equipment didn't show up. Around uh, one hour, uh, some uh, music musicians or uh, roadies announced that the tracks of the band uh, couldn't arrive in fash uh, because someone has put uh, sugar in the tanks of the tracks. Sabotage. <laughs> in Paris, I guess. We promised everyone, we come back, we'll play a free concert, please don't burn the fucking place down, you know. The French were well upset. Uh, but uh, they also announced that the band would uh, come back in Lille at another date. So we were tired. Uh, we, we have come back home, uh, but without believing too much 
what we we aired. The guy hadn't bolted with the money. He just uh, I don't I don't think he could 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 get it that night to give them their money their money back for their tickets. But he he uh, I think he later gave them back ah, the great. money. Because and, and and if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have gone back to play. Right. Okay, so, well, but we're getting are. ahead of ourselves. There was, you know, a bunch of chaos. We locked, barricaded ourselves in the dressing room, and the you know audience was getting more restless. I think a promoter came out and said what we'd said. Nobody believed it, and it seemed like we were going to get into really bad trouble. They didn't take it real well. Uh, so no, we, huh? and we, so we, we retreated. We, we adjourned rather quickly to, to the a, uh, uh, to the dressing room, and um, and we spent about thirty seconds in there wondering what the hell, what the Sam Hill are we going to do now? And um, do we have to go back out there and talk to them again? So right after she made the announcement, and you know the grumbling turned start turning to a roar and a surge towards the stage, and uh, I grabbed her and Ali and uh, Patricia. Uh, um, Victoria's sister, and we hightail it. And I had parked my car. We had we'd gone to England and bought a Rolls Bentley because uh, it was the kind of car she liked to, you know, drive around in. <laughs> so and hightailed it out ahead of the angry crowds. We, we had a shortcut to the highway because uh, we're backstage. Daniel remembers the situation being a little less fraught. I, I don't feel uh, the, the angriness for this uh, evening. The audience were, uh, was not very angry, uh, but very frustrated. They, they wait for hours uh, without any uh, information, but they, they were not very angry. Uh, that was uh, the Grateful Dead audience. They, they were not <laughs> angry people. But they were frustrated and tired. Daniel's friend, Philippe, offers some evidence of the chaos, though. He emails, People were very angry, but no fight. The windows of the exit doors of the rotunda were blown out under the pressure of people who wanted to leave. They had been closed to prevent people from getting in during the concert. I think nobody was hurt. Some cops came. Oof. Thank you, Philippe and Daniel. That gives some excellent context to the dead family's memory of events. Rosie McGee. So um, we went one by one into the bathroom of the dressing room and out the window and uh, down a pipe to, I think it was a top of a, there was a a truck parked right below there. So it wasn't very long of a drop. And somehow we all just got out the window and uh, meanwhile, the door was starting to go thump, thump, <laughs> thump, and bulging a, a little bit. We could see that that was going to hold for about, oh, maybe a minute and a half. And uh, we had we had one uh, one avenue of uh, of escape, and that was out the window and down a drain pipe, uh, just sort of climbing, holding onto the drain pipe down three stories. Actually, and, uh, it was only a story and a half, Bob. Really? You could have jumped it. Really? But he would've, it would have hurt when you landed. Yeah, we would have had a lot of broken ankles. Anyways. So as we were leaving that gig, we had to go out the dressing room window because the, it got to be kind of a riot situation. It got scary. Not to me, of course, but anyway, it got scary. And so I remember Phil was going out the dressing room window, and he said, women and musicians first. And, and that's who went out first. 
we, you know, scrambled out of there. Donna Jean. But it probably was Rex Jackson that hoisted me out of the window. I can't remember if it was a dressing room or a bathroom, but I got hoisted out the window with a lot of other, you know, of the band and crew and everything. I don't remember anything after that, but I remember that, getting, getting through that window. I lowered uh, Donna Jean out the out of the window of the uh, dressing room, which was on the first floor, and the equipment guys like got. I was holding her by the hands, lowering her down, and the equipment guys grabbed her underneath. Meanwhile, <laughs> the band and, and everybody else that's on the in the hot seat are all clambering onto a helicopter and taking off. <laughs> Well, more like a bolo bus than a helicopter. So we yeah. were out of there, uh, out the back window, down the drain pipe, and uh, running for the bus. Uh, a, a quick, quick sprint for the bus. We left a little rose on the uh, on the windowsill there. And then the bus was, you know, revved up, you know, <laughs> uh, just waiting for us, and and uh, we ran like hell and got on the bus and bailed out of town. And so are we. See you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in, folks. And huge thanks to our guests in this episode, including Sam Cutler, Steve Parrish, Donna Jean Godshell McKay, Mountain Girl, Rosie McGee, Alan Trist, Candace Brightman, Ben Holler, Janet Furman, Daniel Duchenne, David Lemieux, Graham Boone, Sully, Courtney Pollock, Philippe Sicard, Sean O'Donnell, and Harry Tuft. Also, special thanks to David Gans and Steve Silberman for providing archival interview audio. Did you travel over to Europe to catch any of the shows in 1972? Well, don't forget to go to stories.dead.net where you can record yourself telling your tale. We definitely want to hear from you, especially if you are at any of the shows in the Netherlands or in Munich. Tell your friends. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and leave us a review if you're so inclined. Thank you very much. Well, who's up for popping back over to England for a festival gig? See you there next week. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.